This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. How you doing, Max? I'm good, Joris. How you doing today? I'm great. I'm actually in a wonderful mood, and everything's going swimmingly, so I'm in a fantastic mood, actually. That's fantastic. I'm glad to hear that. And who do we have and, on the 3D Pod today? Well, we've got Mark Abshire today. And Mark, well, Mark's been working 3D printing for a little bit. Uh, he's a bit of a newbie. He just started at Texas Instruments on, uh, uh, you know, somewhere in the 90s. Uh, doing kind of their uh, rapid prototyping. Uh, then in 1996, he moved as an application engineer to 3D Systems Corporation, not very long after <laughs> it became uh, started. So he's one of the first application engineers, made one of the first, he did a lot of application engineer where, well, in the beginning, nobody really knew what to do with the technology. Then he moved to Sony, and uh, he was a product manager at the RP Group, and uh, that's uh, Sony's... Um, well, rather adventurous foray into additive manufacturing uh, and stereolithography and stuff like that. And then uh, subsequently, he worked at DSM uh, as an application development specialist. Then he worked at uh, Computer-Aided Technologies. And now he's a 3D Print 411 freelance consultant. And also, oh yeah, he does something for the additive manufacturing community called Amug or something like this. Amug. And he's the president of Amug, and uh, and he's uh, the leader of uh, the 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 the, the din- chief dinosaur herder at Amug. So, uh, <laughs> so welcome, uh, Mark Mark Abshar. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, so, yeah. So, Mark, you you got into this in a you know quite early. There, are you is there such a thing as like a triple dino? Can you do that? Is there? <laughs> well, we actually do have some di- double dinos, uh, but they're. We've changed that since then. Yeah, I started in 1988. The first patent for 3D systems was in 1986 mm-hmm. for stereolithography. So uh, we got our first machines at Texas Instruments in 1988. Wow. Okay. And, and that time, oh, yeah. that was like, what was that? Like, what, what was that thing? Is that one of those 250s or whatever? Those it, ones? Was, it, well, it was. They actually had the SLA-1 before the 250s, SLA, and they had a 190. But uh-huh. the 250 is the first ones that we got. That uh, well, they ran on MS DOS, so you can imagine uh-huh. uh, when you can only Sorry. have files that have eight characters in the file hey. name maximum. So uh-huh. you got to get pretty original just there. Uh-huh. Uh, and MS DOS was not strong enough to slice uh, parts mm-hmm. uh, the algorithm, so we had to use Unix computers to do the slicing. And mm-hmm. one of the hardest parts is just networking Unix into MS DOS. Yeah, oh, wow. it was not, yeah. not oh, meant goodness. for that. <laughs> 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 in the beginning, you guys. Okay, so first of all, I've never uh, spoken to someone about this SL one system. What was that? Was that kind of like you know making stuff well, by your hand kind of thing, or <laughs> how did that work? SL one, uh, SL one. The way I understood it was pretty much just a uh, machine in a petri dish type thing. Okay. Uh, or yeah. or it's a small uh, thing, and the SL one ninety is was a smaller machine that was. Uh, uh, well, I should take it back. SL one had a VAT in it, but it did not have mm-hmm. a recoder. So once you drew a oh. layer, and uh, you uh-huh. had to sit there and wait for the material to spread out. <laughs> what? Yo, wow. you're waiting a minute. Minute. What? <laughs> minute. Okay. Per layer. Hey, oh, per layer. God. 
Yeah. Because so wait, we wait, didn't I, know this. Oh, yeah. Seriously. I have so many questions. How big were these machines back know then? For oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wait a minute. In so that fact, took a while. There's quite an evolution with Rico systems what? on these. <laughs> What were you? What were you guys making with these things? If they're, oh, I mean, well, it, it sounded intensely cumbersome to use for starters. It, it, it so, was, but we but we started with the two fifty, so we weren't on that cutting edge in eighty six okay. and stuff. So we started with the two fifty, and we actually had a um, uh, uh, what's called a doctor blade recoder, uh-huh. is what they called it at the time. But anyway, it, so it was just a single arm recoder. That's all it did was go across and, and, and try to smooth that layer out. And you still had a, a Z weight a time that after the Z layer was built, you had to wait. And then you still had a wait time. Even that recoder going across to help smooth you out, you still had a wait, have a wait time to uh, let the meniscus flow get back mm-hmm. even. But oh, in wow. seconds instead of minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay, and but the two fifty, we've heard of a bunch of people that. Well, I know a bunch of people that still have these things, right? They're still yes, running, so yes, th- that's a, a, an amazing machine. Oh, that's right. Materializer still had it, and, uh, and, and most of used, most right? of them out there have been upgraded to a solid state system. They originally mm-hmm. had a, a HECAD helium cadmium laser in them that was a gas laser instead of solid state. So the lasers mm-hmm. would last. Oh, I'd say. Anywhere between a year and eighteen months, if you were lucky, uh, mm-hmm. and then you had to burn the tips on it, uh, made a god awful smell to um, yeah. uh, get when the tips would build up with the residue from the gas and stuff. So, okay, what, what were you guys making with these with these printers well, at that time? Uh, at Texas Instruments, uh, people don't realize it, but they were. Uh, I worked in the missiles and weapons division, so. Okay. Uh, I know we've already seen the protest here for Boeing and stuff out there, but we um, uh, text, uh, they've been uh, bought by Raytheon since then. As a matter of fact, when I after 20 years, I left Texas Instruments, and two weeks after I left, they sold the company to Raytheon. So I tell people that I left and they had to sell the company. Anyway, uh, we were doing weapons and missile division, so it was a prototype, uh, 100% just prototypes because when you're building in 10,000 layers, it's pretty crude. But at the time, it was so exciting to build anything. Uh, what we call, you know, we would think it was crude when we look at it today, but at that time, it was just amazing. You could sit there and watch the laser for hours and watch like grass grow. Uh, and it was um, a, a wonderful thing. We actually had a security guard one night come turn the laser, turn the machines off, pull the plug, because they oh, saw God. a light flashing in there and they thought something Oops. was on fire. <laughs> so lost that build. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and and how did you get your information back then? Because like, okay, first off, you're in this top secret kind of environment, so it can't be easy. You can't go to people with a lot of the problems you have. You know, uh, how did you get kind of any kind of you know, you get some training for three systems, I can imagine, but like, uh, it was how quite did a you bit, learn, you know? Well, it was quite a bit. Uh, well, for me personally, I, I was a machinist. Uh, so I uh, started out with subtractive uh, manufacturing. Uh, my father and my grandfather were machinists. So uh, I had a lot of knowledge in, in machine setup and things like that. I had built my own computer, which back in 88 was a. Uh, big deal so i knew a little bit about computers and then um i had uh, also worked on a, a laser guidance systems with uh, uh texas instruments so the combination of working with lasers combination of computers combination of uh, setups 
it just kind of came together for me. I was just I was in the right place at the right time. So so that's that's the skills that that brought it together. And do you think because I, I noticed that some of the guys that have been around for a long time, they all started out as machinists because that was like kind of the closest thing they had to someone like, here, Bob, try this machine, you know? Yeah, yeah, right. it's a machine. Different, <laughs> uh, and because now you'd get maybe a mechanical engineer or a systems engineer or something like lots right. of different people. And back then they just thought like, oh, let's just grab a machinist with like a varied background. And that seems to be <laughs> all these guys that did this. Uh, does that like Pat Warner, all these guys that kind of have the same background, the kind of a diverse machinist background kind of, and um, does that give you a different take on 3d printing? Do you think? I, I think it enhances the 3d printing in the sense that uh, it helps you be more creative with setups. Uh, because when you look at a, a, a machine shop and you're looking at how to start a part, just start it. You know, you've got to think early on about it. Well, here, how do I set this up to have the least amount of, uh, repositioning, I'll call it in the machine, so I can get every surface done. Well, it's the same way in three D printing. You start. I start experimenting with. Well, if I build this on a forty five degree angle, I can self support without a bunch of uh, uh, grid line supports coming up to it, and then it's easier to clean and easier for everybody to work with, and and still has good mechanical strength. So I think the setup has a lot to do with it that the machinist experience gives you. Was, uh, on those old machines, did you also have to like do path planning manually, if you will, or or uh, were they they have no, that they, ability? They pretty much had an algorithm for the uh, for the path. You had an algorithm that would do it. However, on the first machines, we had to manually draw all our supports. There was no support generator, so if you had a down facing surface and you missed it. It crashed. It either crashed early or it crashed later. And then you go back and say, well, what layer did it crash on? Oh, I must have a down-facing area there that I didn't support. So everything was was drawn manually until uh, uh, software came out. It was called Bridgeworks, and it had little castle connection points or perforations. Yeah. What what were you guys using for software to generate? The 3D model. I mean, were you generating 3D models or were you using just pure math? To, uh, if you will, almost like G code, if you drawn will. In, were drawn in CAD and they were called uh, Ares, A R I E S. Uh, Ares was our first um, CAD model. Uh, it was somewhat limited uh, <laughs> because, well, I'll give you an like example. One, one frame a, an hour kind of limited? Well, no, like- no, it wasn't quite that bad, but, but you couldn't put. If we had a part that was a radius, like a missile uh, round radius, yeah. a round channel, and you put a rib in it, so you just draw this rib, well, you couldn't put a radius around the rib now because you couldn't put a radius on a radius. So we had square corners there, and that's a problem but because uh, you get more strength with the get radius. Aerodynamics corners. and all that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so the, the, the CAD itself was so crude that, you know, you, you could only get a simulation of what you really wanted in the real world. Then it got better. It got better, the CAD. And then some uh, things, even after you sliced it, you would have to go in and make sure each layer was a full curve or a full circle or connected because sometimes they were broken because if a triangle is bad in your STL file, it didn't know what to do because it was broken. Then you'd have to go in and manually fill in each layer to make sure it was joined together. So, so it took, it took a while to make a part. Yeah, it's not like, yeah, it's, it's, it's not like pumping it out. 
But at that time, was it seen? Okay, so it was kind of cool and revolutionary and new, right? But right. was it seen within like your company? Was it seen like a revolutionary thing, or was it just something that like it was a cool tool for the guys in the workshop? Let's say it, it was. It was a revolutionary um, uh, to the upper management. It was revolutionary to the machinist out on the floor. They uh, opposed it because they thought it was going to put them out of a job. So that, that I guess they would say they called it revolutionary because they thought it was going to replace them. And once we convinced them that it wasn't going to replace them but help them, because we had several applications that would help them, then it, they realized, oh, this is a tool you know, that, that's going to enhance our job. So I'll give you an example. If you're a machinist and you're making a, 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 a bunch of castings, well, you're only going to make one part in a, in a stereolithography machine and you're not going to make millions of parts necessarily of a, a large part but if we if i made one part for you that matched your casting now you can go and do uh your cnc programming and machine and tool proof the program on that plastic part now it doesn't cost you anything if you scrap a casting. If you scrap that plastic part, you just found out your machine path on your CNC machine was bad, which is cheap to find out early uh, rather than later. So once we've convinced them that, hey, you know, this is a tool for you guys to use for that, then we started making little fixtures for them and things like that so that or they could uh, to help them speed up their uh, production and things and hand tools. So that's when it became more. Uh, embraced by the community and and Fixtures is that also how you came up with like patterns and stuff like that because you did you were one of the first if not the first people to like come up with you know let's use this for casting you know i think we were the first uh, i'm sure we were the first because we started out with a solid uh part and we said let's try and cast this so we went to an investment casting do you know the difference in investment casting or I would appreciate the explanation. Okay, so so there's really two kinds of investment casting. Uh, one is where you take a part and you dip it in a ceramic slurry, and that slurry hardens, and you build up several layers on it. So uh, once you've built these layers, you would typically start with a wax pattern. You'd melt that wax out of there. So once you melt the wax out, you now have got a hollow vase. You pour metal into it. And then you'd break that vase off once that metal cools. And that's how you get your casting. So that's the one method of investment. Another one is the way they make jewelry. And that is they actually uh, will make the wax rings and things like that. And they will put it in a uh, bucket of plaster. And then they'll melt that wax out after the plaster hardens. And then they'll pour the gold, silver, platinum, whatever alloy they're working with into that bucket and then they wash that uh, under high pressure will wash away the plaster so those are the two methods and i uh, they're both called investment casting but two methods and i bring that up for a particular reason um so in aerospace we made that solid part and we wanted to get it cast in metal so we took it and had a shell uh type made where they would dip it into the ceramic slurry and the shell broke when we tried to melt out the plastic because the plastic we found out expands slightly just before it burns out. So then we said, okay, let's take this solid piece and let's do a plaster. That way it's got more material around it and it can't uh, 
it can take that expansion better because it's stronger. So we took it and put it in a big bucket, basically. And we um, ended up being able to get a casting. That It was pretty crude, but we got one that we could use. Now, the first time I, t- I shipped a pattern up, we had to do this in Canada, by the way, because uh, the foundry in Canada is the only one that had a bucket, uh, had this process and buckets big enough to do big parts. Usually your buckets are small for jewelry, and we were doing a body of a, of a missile. And so um, I went up to Canada, and I'll just share this real quick. If you're going through customs and I ask what you're carrying and, 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 and you tell them that it's a part for a missile and you tell them that it's made out of plastic, well, plastic to them is a explosive. So, so, so that, that didn't go over be, very well. You will be detained. In, even in Canada, you will be detained. Trust me on this. So something I learned the hard way. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, so once we got out of customs and got our part in there, we were able to get a get a part out of a plaster mold. Well, working with 3D systems, we asked them, is there some way we can make this hollow? And that way, when it uh, wants to expand, it takes the path of least resistance and actually implodes. And there was the beginning of quick cast process where you made your parts uh, hollow with the structure inside to hold them. So QuickCast oh. became a, quite a business for 3D systems. I think also it was one of the first times when you could make real parts that are actually useful outside of the prototyping realm that could really say, okay, look, we can actually make end-use parts. So it must have been huge. But did you get the freedom to do this in the company? Like, were you just like free to, to, to make this up? Did you have a lot of spare hours given to you? Or did you have like a particular part problem and that's why they gave you the enough time to do this? It, it, it was, it was a part problem that they gave. It was a, it was a command decision. You will do this. It wasn't a, <laughs> Hey, we want to experiment with this. It was, let's okay, find okay. out a way to, a way to do this. Um, there is some resistance uh, in the uh, quality control world because um, they did not know how to inspect a casting that they couldn't inspect the tooling on. Usually you would inspect the tooling and approve the tooling. And because there was no tooling in this, it became an, a hurdle to overcome uh, on it too. And and because you're only making one to less than 10 pieces, your your SPC, your statistical process control of, of doing so many samples uh, for quality control, that goes out the window too. So that, that, that becomes a, a little bit of a hurdle. And uh, how did you solve that then? Or how did you solve in the beginning? Just like we were, create we exceptions? Were, or? We were very fortunate that we had a, um, uh, a guy that was a senior fellow at Texas Instruments, one of their highest titles. And, uh, and in fact, his name's Bob Steffen. I don't mind sharing his name. I'm sure Bob doesn't. He's retired. Um, Bob uh, was instrumental in convincing QC that, hey, we're on the cusp of something that's going to revolutionize uh, manufacturing. We have to make some exceptions here. If we have to do 100% first article inspection, that's what we're going to do. So we had backing. That was the important thing is have support. Okay, yeah. I think that's, uh, there's only somebody that has to stick their neck out. And typically in a company like that, it needs to be somebody high up, right? So that's, uh, Right. And the first and the first article inspection thing, is that still what you would recommend to people? Or do you think, no, we're way past that now? I, th- I, th- I think we're past that in the sense that now you can just do critical dimensions. And I say we're past that because machines have gotten so much more accurate uh, in, the, in, in their uh, software and in their uh, mechanical ability. 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's a lot less guess guesswork, and okay, and also we have a lot more tools. I think. I think. Right. For doing that, I mean, I think you would have I mean, to we do. Have, we have scanning yeah. now and all that stuff. Yeah, that you can just overlap. We didn't have scanners back then. Well, back then, all we had was a CMM type. CMM machines. index, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So now with, with GUI, you can maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You have a GUI. A GUI? Yeah, yeah, a graphical user interface. Graphic user interface. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> <laughs> we should magnify that 200 times. Yeah, um, yeah, that, yeah. He, see, he, he's old school when he uses words like GUI. He probably GUI. knows what WYSIWYG is, too. I do, actually. <laughs> what you see is what you get. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah, so at one point, you, you moved then to three systems, right? And what was it like working for the company? Because the company had been around for a bit, but kind of more in its lab kind of stage, essentially. Uh, well, it must have been very had, pioneering. Yeah? We, we, had ver we had worked very closely with uh, uh, 3D systems to get things developed, not just the quick cast, but some of the, we, proted, we um, beta tested some of their other improvements. We were talking earlier about the recoder blades. Well, on these big machines that were 20 by 20 inches, they had a recoder blade that went across. And they decided, well, what if we suspended that material in the blade with suction? And that would just put a coat, rather than dip down and get a new layer on top, we would be applying the layer on top, and that way we could be much quicker. We actually beta tested that with them and things like that. So I was well known within the company as far, uh, within 3D Systems, when I went to work for them. I should tell you a little bit about kind of how I went to work for them. Uh, 20 years at Texas Instruments, um, uh, working on missiles and weapons. Uh, I, I knew I always ha would I have a job until peace broke out in the world. So uh, that's pretty secure, knowing that uh, you're not worried <laughs> so about you, peace. At the end of the out. Cold War, didn't hurt too much. <laughs> no, no, no. So you got a pretty secure job. Uh, yeah, but I was working. I was at uh, Lackland Air Force Base, uh, working on a project. And one of the uh, officers there said, uh, Lackland actually has a hospital uh, medical center there. It's actually larger than Walter Reed. People don't realize it. It's down by San Antonio, Texas. And um, they were doing a lot of um, implants. And this is uh, kind of during Desert Storm. Um, so they wanted me to come over there. We were doing, uh, since I knew we were in castings, we were talking about making castings for um, head wounds and things like that. And uh, so we were doing titanium casting plates where they would they could actually scan the uh, MRI and we would replace it on the medical side with a titanium plate. Well, this is huge because usually you would have to open it up, take measurements of the skull, close it back up in the operating room. Then you would uh, go cast your part and then you would go open it up again, put your part in, close it up again. Well. This is double surgery. If we could take a medical scan, MRI, and make our casting from that, they would just have to open one time, implant, and go into the uh, and go into there with a, a titanium plate, uh, and usually for head wounds, things like that is what we were working on. So that became a big deal at Lackland. Well, they pulled me aside one time. They had a special project. They had uh, conjoined twins, and these twins uh, shared. Uh, a, uh, a leg, I should say, uh, between them, uh, a stub uh, of a leg, really. It was kind of personal to me because I am an identical twin. I have a twin brother. And so um, uh, they told the parents that 
uh, one of these uh, children can have a prosthesis when we separate them, and one of them will be in a wheelchair the rest of their life, and you need to decide which one. You guys, you guys that are parents, you know that's a, that's going to yeah, be an impossible choice, decision. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So this we was prettier. <laughs> so I was able to. I was able. They gave me the, all the MRI scans, and by the way, MRI scans back then they were twenty thousands layers, and we built in ten, so we just had to uh, kind of duplicate a layer in between to get something crude. But anyway, I built the bone structure, and the doctors all looked at it and said, um, you know. If we separate the bone just this way, then they can both have a prosthesis. And so they did it, and it was successful. Uh, about wow. a year later, I was back down wow. in Lackland, and um, I saw, and he said, hey, the kids are here. Do you want to see them? And I said, sure. And so these, these you know, kids are so adaptable. They were running around like it was natural to them uh, with the prosthesis uh, on. And it was amazing. And there it kind of hit me that, you know, I don't need to be making mass weapons of destruction. I need to be teaching other people how to do this and how to make applications that are going to help people. That's why I left after 20 years of making missiles and decided, okay, I need to go to work for 3D systems so we can do some, develop some applications in this that are a little more helpful. So that's how I kind of spent the rest of my life out there. I've been through China. Uh, all over the world, uh, teaching people how to use the technology. So you moved to Three Systems, and you worked on a Windows NT application called Lightyear. <laughs> well, I actually, yeah, actually, Lightyear was a. Um, well, we already had the Windows NT, but Lightyear was a um, a Windows, uh, not necessarily NT, but just a Windows. Was it three? So not Unix. Uh, yeah, 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 but uh, a Lightyear. So before we were doing everything on Unix. Well, this was the first time we could actually slice and generate supports and all these things a uh, light year. In fact, the, 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 the programmer for Lightyear, and I'll mention his name here because he's still at 3D Systems, Rajiv Kukarni, good friend of mine, and he works with me at AMUG, uh, the Additive Manufacturing User Group. But uh, he was the uh, developer. I did the beta testing on it along with a couple of some other people. Yeah, uh, it, we developed that, and that really uh, took away all the problems of having to network machines. And by then, we had Windows on the machines and things like that, that so we could network the files easily, slice much faster. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. And and yeah, what was it like in three systems at the time? Was it like uh, you know, it must have been very new? Was it difficult to find new applications, or was it difficult to tell people like, no, this doesn't work? Or what was the state at the time in the nineties? I, I never said no, you know. I said I don't know, but we'll find out to everything. So anytime somebody came up and said, "Can you do this?" it was like, "I don't know, but we'll find out." Uh, a unique application was. Um, uh, silicon wafer chips for Micron. Uh, they're putting uh, material on top of their silicon wafer. Well, what if we spun a sterilithography material on top of the wafer to coat it, and then we cured just the grid pattern that we were going to cut the edges with? Super awesome, yeah. You know, and, and so, so we generate that grid pattern on there. So I worked on that project. And, and rather than use expensive wafers, I used eight-inch pieces of glass to see if I could cure it on glass, spin it, and all that kinds of stuff. So we really pretty much took on 
any project. Uh, one project that I did not work on that was super successful. Uh, maybe that's why. No, but uh, is is the Align Technologies where they did the braces uh, things. So it was uh, uh, they pioneered that that you could scan someone's teeth, take an algorithm to take crooked teeth and slowly f- shape them in 12 different iterations, one for each month, and you would wear these invisible braces, we call them at the time. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, that's now a and million that's now, parts a day, two million yeah, parts a day application. Yeah. It, it's a mainstream thing, but it was actually developed there in the lab at 3D Systems and things, with, along with the line technologies, the company. Yeah. So. And, and, have you, in my experience, it's always so that the best applications come from clients that don't have another place to turn to. Kind of your situation when you had at Texas Instruments, but also Align just had this crazy idea and they wanted to make it work and it just couldn't be done in any other technology, right? Right. And it, it comes from customers. It does not come from somebody sitting at a uh, desk going, hey, I wonder how many of these we could sell. It comes from a customer says, I got a need for this and I don't have any other way to produce it. Can you help me out? And that's where 99% of the most successful ones, I think, uh, uh, applications come from. And then you decided after nine years of 3D systems, right? Right. Uh, which in a really exciting time, because it went from like, you know, kind of, it wasn't like a hobby project, but it was kind of like a, like a, you know, small company to a much larger corporation at that time. Um, so it must've been kind of like a very growing kind of thing. Did it change a lot the working there in that, in that moments from like the mid nineties to the mid two thousands? Did it change a lot as a, cor- a company? Three uh, D systems, yes, they changed quite a bit. They went through uh, several uh, top executive management changes, and each one brought their own different um, strategy with them. I saw everything from a strategy of we should be a commodity, just like um, hard drives, you know, where everybody's got one. Well, I, we should be where everybody has one. But not at that time. We're not ready for it. Um, you guys probably aren't old enough to remember, but when 2D printers came out for your computer, not everybody had one. We, we don't think about it now. Everybody's got one or two or more in their house. But at one time, we sat in, a, in an office and four of us would share a printer uh, on our computers. Uh, because they were so expensive and so new. Well, that's where we were in the 2000s. We weren't ready for everyone to have one yet. But mm-hmm. but your management is, is out there trying to push that kind of uh, uh, thought process. So, yeah, it, it changed. And I shouldn't say it was a problem. I, I guess I would say those managers, however, they were more forward-looking than what we were at, which is good. I mean, that's what they should be doing, be forward-looking. Yeah, I saw, I've seen in my time so many strategies that aren't really <laughs> strategies, first off. <laughs> it's just a really good idea, but it's not necessarily like a path to winning in a particular industry or a path to, to, to actually making your winning uh, a foregone conclusion, essentially, Yeah, through mastering some kind of skill or, 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 or ability or whatever. You know, I've seen so many things that are not like that, and I've seen so many cookie cutter stuff that's just crazy. I mean, I always tell people that to do like on these mission statements or these big strategies. Like, would your strategy also be applicable to McDonald's? And there's so many cases where people were just have this thing of like, we want to be the best and serve our customers and work for uh, a better world and all this. And you could just say, okay, you could just substitute your company for McDonald's, and it would be exactly the same. That's right. Exactly. Like, yeah. You're exactly right. You know, you might as well serve coffee. That's that's, <laughs> uh, that's the same thing. 
<laughs> they don't have you can make a machine like, that does it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have anything to do with like the actual industry, the actual problem at hand, the actual mastering a skill or ability that that that, that gets us there or uh, ahead of everyone else. Anyway, so then you decided. In a uh, to 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 go on a new adventure, right? And that well, was Sony, right? Right. At the time, Sony came out with a uh, had come out with a three D printer. Uh, what had happened was uh, many users got together and put a class action lawsuit against three D systems because they had a monopoly. They were the only they weren't the only three D printer. They were the only resin uh, based three uh, D printer in the U S. So Didn't they have a uh, patent. They had a patent. And, so that it's and, but, a monopoly. <laughs> yeah, but they were the only one. So, but the users, you know, thought that that was a monopoly. And the Justice Department, if you go back and look at the history, decided, yeah, they need to be able to share their technology with a, another corporation, another rival uh, ah. out there to keep, you know. So, uh, 3D, 3D systems, systems actually got to, got to pick who they were going to compete against. Once they, um, <laughs> so they picked Sony. They picked, they picked Sony. Well, that wasn't a bad decision. Yeah, Sony no, had no. deep pockets, but they were a foreign country. It wasn't a bad strategy uh, for them to choose Sony. Sony was a, a foreign country, so you had the issues of shipping the machines over, uh, things like that. Now, they did have U.S.-based uh, uh, companies also, so they could build here. Uh, but they also had, but their design work was all done in Japan. You also had a cultural uh, difference it was Sony, things like that. So, uh, therefore, that you know, that was their decision. So, Sony had a license. Sony started producing machines. There was an opportunity for me, so I went to work uh, with Sony. It was a financial decision too uh, to go there. They had a little bit of different culture. I, I know that there was a time when there was an issue with the machine, and their, their machines was much were much larger than three systems at the time, and they also had dual lasers, so they could draw quicker. So they had some, some advantages and things. And this became a cross licensing agreement, so three D systems could use some of their technologies at the same time. People don't realize that, but it was cross licensing. And so then the um, kind of long winded here, but they ended up. Basically, Sony uh, didn't know how to compete in the U.S. with this product uh, in the sense that uh, a customer would say, hey, uh, I like your product. I want to see it. Uh, let me put one in my uh, facility for three months, and if I like it, I'll buy it. Well, three systems would do that in, in certain cases. you know, Sony would not. It wasn't part of their culture to do that. Uh, when I looked at a, a, a flaw in the machine and I went over to a milling machine and I made a part and put it on there and it fixed the flaw, I was um, kind of told that some designer in, in Japan has lost face. Therefore, you know, it's a problem for me to do that, to make those solutions when they have designers in Japan. So the culture was so, totally different than what I was used to being more open at 3D Systems to fix issues. Uh, so that didn't, uh, so, uh, at one point Sony decided to get out of the business altogether. And that's when I left, uh, Sony after. Yeah. Then I sold four yeah. machines or something. something like that. Yeah. Well, like, it, it uh, gets sold to Stratasys. The license was sold yeah. to, to Stratasys wh who did not use it for many, many years. Yeah. And I, and I knew the, uh, uh, VP at Stratasys and I asked him one time, why aren't you using the license? Mm -hmm. And he says, because. 
we own that license, 3D Systems can't sue us if we have any patent infringements because it's a cross-licensing <laughs> agreement. So they bought it for insurance. No. <laughs> the funny thing is that they could have sold it to EOS, right? Well, EOS would have maybe at least gone 50% in on SLA. EOS had an SLA and, machine. And, and, correct. And, and, and DSM tried to buy it also. Yeah, exactly. I tried to buy it. I tried to get it as part of my exit package. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to get it part of my exit package, and then I could. But anyway, uh, so they oh, wow. sold it. so that's the reason Stratasys. I was told bought it, and, and and people don't realize. But if you look at a uh, Stratasys FDM machine, mm. uh, do you know that when they draw, they draw on a forty-five degree angle, and they cross mm. again on a forty-five degree angle? Do you know why they do a forty-five degree angle? No, nope. so that's how Sony to set it up. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm talking about the FDM, the Stratasys FDM machine. Uh, Most no. of your FDMs are drawing on a 45. When what's the difference between drawing it straight and crisscrossing it uh, 90 degrees? At 45, you're still doing a crisscross 90 degrees. But 3D systems own the patent on XY scanning, so you can't go XY. You've got to go 45 degrees. That's crazy. Okay. Otherwise, uh, back in the early days, they would sue you over something like that. Yeah. No. 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 I, I get that. Like. Uh, so, so, so people don't realize that part of the history there. So that's crazy. Yeah. So I, I think it's funny that they could have changed everything by just selling that on to AOS or something like that. Right. Well, they, they don't only keep three systems at bay, uh, but all, and also kind of the tacit understanding: you don't go for us, or you don't come for us. You know, until much, much later when. Because it took serious systems a long time to come up with FDM as well, right? Yeah. They also didn't do that. They could have done that much earlier. So it's kind right. of a detente thing. But also it kept, it made AOS concentrate completely on powder bed fusion. Because AOS at the time was a was an AOS, where AOS had uh, SLA machines. That's what they were doing. They weren't allowed to do it. They had a years-long battle with 3D systems. And then they kind of lost. And then they had to go make powder bed fusion machines. <laughs> right, right. And then, uh, and then 3D systems ends up buying them. Uh, at one point, and they yep. still have a lawsuit against them. And when I was working three systems, so we actually had a lawsuit against ourselves. <laughs> no no yeah, one the whole DTM stopped thing it. Like, no, how does that work? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would think you would sell that out of court. No, that's, right. what DTM, <laughs> that's, what D, that's what the DTM thing, right? Uh, well, that was also right, going so on right, the same DTM. time. DTM. Well, DTM. What they're really DTM. settling is right, paying DTM. the lawyers. Yeah, so the yeah. DTM, they were doing that with AOS, and then meanwhile with DTM, they were doing the other way around. And then right. they had, so they had like a double situation where the people that they should have just moved the patents once to the left or something. Right. Everybody rotate <laughs> right, to the like left. A, a patent mamba. Nobody had, like, the guys who wanted the powder fusion patent didn't really want it. Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. Yeah. Anyway. Just, so uh, everyone could just swap your patents, please. Okay. There yeah, we go. Exactly. Yeah. Happy now. But once the patents all expired where everybody could make everything, that's yeah. where the industry stands today, which, uh, you know, is, 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 as you can, you know, you can yeah. be an expert at everything now. No, exactly. Well, I, don't, I think that's still, I think it's, so on the one hand, we were before everybody was captured by their own silo, it's their own technology silo. Yes. And it meant that everybody was only working on their own thing. And for example, like uh, uh, now we're still not used to using different parts from different machines. Like we'll do a binder jet part plus a FDM part on one build or one part, right? Right. And people are still used to doing that because nobody thinks like that because... I was only thinking in my own technology silo because right? I only want to shift SLA machine. On the other hand, what we do have now is a problem that 
there's a lot of people like salespeople, support engineers, stuff that always have to support like five different technologies. And I think that's going to be rather complicated. And, and, and because everybody was in their own silo, 3D, and I'll, I'm going to throw a plug in here from, from, from my group. 3D Systems had a 3D Systems user group. Stratus has had a Stratasys user group. Uh, EOS had a, a EOS user group. So you have people that own multiple technologies and they cannot all uh, attend every user group because then they could never run a machine uh, in their office because uh, uh, if everybody had one for a week long. Therefore, 3D Systems did not own the 3D Systems user group. Users actually owned it, not 3D Systems. So 3D Systems user group decided to incorporate with uh, DTM when they had their user group. Uh, we incorporated them uh, into it. We incorporated Stratasys into it. So you have an additive manufacturing user group now so that people with multiple disciplines, you could have an HP machine, you could have, you know, um, a Renshaw, you could have anything, but we have a user group that you can come to now and look at all the technologies uh, and compare it together because you may own several in your company now. That, that And that's the purpose of the Additive Manufacturing User Group. So, AMUG, I think it's wonderful. I think it's fantastic because it is that it has that ethos. And that's the ethos of let's buy the newest machine, take it apart, and everybody can see what the guts are, right? And because it's user-owned, it is different from another kind of trade show, which is more commercial and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But there's still a lot of people that just don't go to AMUG or see it as like, oh, I'm going to go to Rapid this year. You know, they see it as a kind of like a similar thing. Why should I go to AMUG? Well, pitch it to me, Mark. Why should I really go? Well, there's several, there's several reasons. First of all, we don't allow just everybody to go. It, we strictly want the users that own already own and operate machines because we want to share that knowledge. The whole concept of, uh, that started with this user group was eight people, I think it was eight, getting together and saying, okay, these machines are brand new. This is back in 88. And they're going, these machines are brand new. We're all, we all got one. Let's share our knowledge on how to use it. So that, they still have the same concept as we're trying to share knowledge on what we're doing with these and how to use it. The second thing is, this is your opportunity, if, you, if you're a machine owner, to stand up and tell your company that, that you bought that machine from, these are the improvements that we would like to see. Now, if you're not invested and you don't have a machine, go to Rapid and, and look at the machines. But until you operate one, you're not really qualified to tell them what they need to change and what app and what materials you need, what software you need. These are the people that, that know uh, what they want. Now, the third thing we do, uh, and I'll say, um, is networking. You're going to meet people that you're forced to network in. I say forced, and I'm, I'm in gently forced because. Uh, you're going to pick a number out of a fishbowl and that's the table you're going to set at for lunch. And there's going to be eight other people there that, that you don't know that it's going to have different technologies, different disciplines. Some are going to be engineers, some are going to be designers, and you're going to uh, meet people to work together. Our last conference, uh, we just had a keynote speaker. One was an architect and one was medical and we had them speak. Uh, they met at AMUG. And they worked on a project together. When you can get an architect, uh, and the architect, and they also did animation. So you get an architect with animation skills and medical to create an application that met just because they sat at a lunch table together. 
The fourth thing I'll mention is hands-on training. If you come, uh, when you come to AMUG, you're going to, we actually pour metal castings. We're going to heat up some um, tin and um, we're going to pour a metal casting into a shell mold. You're going to let it cool off, break that mold open and get your part. And then you're going to understand a little bit more about the casting process because you did your hands on it. We've had other things in there as far as uh, how to put in uh, hardware. If you need to put in insert screws, uh, uh, nuts into your part, well, how, what's the best methods to do that, depending on what technology you have? And there was a huge array of all kinds of heat up and press in inserts, screw them in, all kinds of stuff that we had last year. Uh, a huge array of how to bond parts together, even chemically and mechanically. Uh, another hands-on that we've had in the past was the um, uh, hydro printing, which I thought was very interesting, where you put a, a film in the water and then you take your uh, the back of your cell phone, for example, and you'll dip it into this film, and now you've got a camouflaged uh, or a wood grain or something look on there. So you, that's an application for 3D printing that people can use and things. So so we're we're teaching applications. We're sharing knowledge of how we do things. And we're letting people uh, meet each other that are cross disciplines. But the only thing is, you have to like Chicago, right? They have something on your mind. (laughs) No, (laughs) you you know, uh, people complain about Chicago, but our activities, we do very little. I mean, just because it is Chicago, we've got a full program that goes every night. We have a, a expo open at night. You don't really have to go out in Chicago at all. We have something going every single uh, day and night, so you don't even have to step outdoors. The um, and maybe in Chicago you shouldn't. Miss all that great food. I don't, you know. Yeah, <laughs> we have, we have great food. We have a uh, we have an open well, bar. I might miss the great food in Chicago, but fair enough. If, oh. if you're introverted <laughs> enough, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> The, but we have a uh, uh, an open bar that helps people network and talk quite a bit too. <laughs> uh, let's see what else. Uh, but but the technical Chicago, competitions. We've got technical, technical competitions. Competition. I think we're the only one that offers technical yes, competitions like out there, where people can uh, uh, take their different technologies. The best I've ever gotten was second place, by the way. So uh, I've oh, entered it a couple wow. of times. So, but still, that's what did you make? What did you make for second place? Second like? place, yeah. I actually, uh, uh, you know what a lithophane is? Yeah, we've no. done that. We try to commercialize lithophanes. Oh, wait, what's a lithophane? It's okay. like you put light around it and light around a picture. It's, a, it, it it's a, a, a lithophane. is oh, like a, a lithograph, but yeah. you're, it's like, okay. Well, you, yeah. take, like a, yeah. you take a photo and you make it grayscale. And once you make it grayscale, you can give different depths to it. Uh, so that when light shines through, if it's a thin section, the more light will shine through than the thick section. So it looks like a photographic negative, uh, basically uh, with light behind it. So I took a, and you can look up, it, it's L-I-T-H-O-P-H-A-N-E if you want to Google it. But I took a lithophane, which is not a new thing, but uh, I took a lithophane of the Mona Lisa. And I then I put color on top by using the object machine. So I, not only did I give it depth. Oh, nice. Not only did nice, I give it yeah. depth, I gave it uh, color on top from the original, and then I um, uh, back uh, put it in a frame and put LED light uh, lights behind it, nice. and could change colors and everything in there. Ooh. So it was a 
It was quite a That's bit of um, you know. What if a tiger would beat you? What? Seriously, <laughs> how did you get beat with? Oh, these, these are tough technical competitions. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, I got beat out. So, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So All I right. did. Yeah. So I Googled, and Mona Lisa was the most recognizable or most famous yeah, piece mm-hmm. of art. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh wow. Okay. Anyway, so so. I have an idea, Mark, that I think we can talk for hours and hours more uh, about all the stuff you've done. And we missed a whole bunch of stuff you did at, 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 at DSM as well as Somos. And, yeah, I worked uh, with materials development, and a lot of that yeah. was based on my casting experience. Yeah, exactly. So, so we missed all that. I think I think, I think we should invite you but back. But you have to come right? back, yeah. Uh, oh. You have to come back. We're just like halfway, <laughs> halfway there. We'll do a part two. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Part two. But thank you so much, Mark. It was always wonderful learning a little bit about what you've done so far. I appreciate it. Appreciate your time and having me on. Uh, and Max, thanks, thanks for being here as well. Always fascinating. Thank you, Joyce. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod, and uh, have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.